Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are starting a new series of sermons this morning, and we begin with the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is pretty much in the middle of the Bible. If you turn to the middle, you'll find it quickly. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Please give your full attention to the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I have already had a few people ask me, we're doing Ecclesiastes again? Didn't we just do that a little while ago? Well, those of you who have been around a while, you'll remember we did do this book. We went through a series of sermons, but that was seven years ago. Just shows how fast passes timing for those of you who have been around since the first time we worked our way through Ecclesiastes. But what happened is, uh, as we do now, that we have three preachers on staff, three pastors, we get together, we plan the preaching schedule, and Pastor Owen and Pastor Ben both said, boy, I'd really like to preach through, have us preach through Ecclesiastes. And I immediately said, no, I, I did that recently. I didn't know how recently. I looked it up. It was seven years. But I, we, I did it not too long ago. I don't normally go back to a book that soon after preaching through it. Uh, but the more we talked about it, the more we thought about it. And you know what I thought? You know, that was actually one of my favorite sermon series I've ever done. So I, I was, it wasn't, didn't take much to convince me to say, let's work through it again, and, and I am looking forward to that. And besides, many of you weren't here seven years ago either, so uh, hopefully we will truly enjoy this study. It's an unusual book. Ecclesiastes is unlike any other book in the Bible. And you have to be very careful how you interpret it. The book of Ecclesiastes, the name Ecclesiastes, is actually an interesting name to the book. It's actually a Greek name. As you know, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but we know it by the Greek name, the Greek name that was in the Greek version of the Old Testament that they used in the first century, and it was called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was a Greek translation of the Hebrew name for the book, which was Koheleth, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H, Koheleth. That was the Hebrew name of the book. Koheleth is not a proper name of a person, but it's a title. It's the person, the title of the person who speaks 
throughout almost the entire book. There is an introduction at the beginning, which is what we're looking at this morning, and then there's a conclusion at the end that's written by the author, but Koheleth is the preacher. In the ESV, it calls him the preacher in verse 1. That's the English translation that they come up with for Koheleth or Ecclesiastes. The word you might recognize, ecclesia, from the word ecclesiastes is the Greek word from the New Testament for church. And that's what the word literally means. The word ecclesiastes or the word koheleth in Hebrew means one who assembles, one who gathers people together. And the name ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesiastes, which means church in the New Testament, means the gathered people of God, the called out ones, the ones who are gathered by God. So that's why the ESV gives the title to the one who speaks through most of the book, the preacher. Some translations call him the teacher because of that idea. It's one who assembles people together to teach them, to instruct them. In verse 1, it says that he's the son of David and the king over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, of course, once, especially once you study the content of the book, the king in Jerusalem, who's a son of David that makes most sense, is Solomon. And many people in the history of the church until today have thought that Solomon is the one who wrote the book. Interestingly, Solomon's name is at the beginning of Proverbs, and Solomon's is the name at the beginning of Song of Songs, but Solomon's name is not actually in the book. And there's a lot of good reasons, and I won't begin to get into all the technical reasons why scholars think that Solomon probably wasn't the one who wrote the book. I'm not sure. Honestly, I've looked into it as far as I and my amateur scholarliness can look into it, and I'm not really sure whether Solomon wrote it or not. I do like, though, one commentator's uh, way of putting it. He said, this book of the Bible was either written by Solomon or about Solomon or by and about Solomon, one of, the, uh, one of those three options. And so the idea is that Solomon is kind of a, a, a model for the Koheleth, the preacher or the teacher that the, does the most of the speaking in the book. Um, we know that because, you know, he was king in Israel. He was king of Israel in Jerusalem. And the kind of search that the writer or the Koheleth, the, the preacher, the teacher goes through is very similar to the kind of searching that Solomon did. Even though he was known for his wisdom, and certainly the book of Ecclesiastes is all about wisdom, even though he was known for his wisdom, he also was all about many, many wives, pursuing pleasure, pursuing power, pursuing wealth. And so you'll see that throughout the course of the book. Again, maybe it's written as kind of Solomon as a model, but that's the kind of person who's, who's speaking through most of the book. One thing that is essential to understanding how I'm going to interpret the book, and I assume that, that Ben and Owen, when they preach, will do the same thing, is that Koheleth is actually a hypothetical figure. The author uses the person of the preacher, the teacher, Koheleth, uses him as kind of a, I would hesitate to say fictional, but hypothetical figure because he wants to have somebody speak in the person from the perspective of someone who does, lives only according to the boundaries of what is real in this world under the sun. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He's a skeptic about the things that the rest of the Old Testament teaches about. 
Since we live in a university setting, and so many of you are connected to the university, I'm actually, instead of calling him teacher or preacher, and especially because I don't so vastly disagree, I'm not going to call him a preacher, I'm going to call him a professor. He is the professor, this fictional, this hypothetical figure who speaks beginning in verse 12, and we'll begin looking at that next week. The professor, and we're going to see that actually the worldview of the professor as he speaks in the book of Ecclesiastes is going to be very similar to the worldview of a lot of professors that we deal with on the campus. The last time I preached through this seven years ago, I called him Professor Q because I didn't want to pronounce Koheleth for the rest of the series, and because Q is easier, and so I called him Professor Q. Well, since then, we've had the last couple of years, the QAnon conspiracies <laughs> and the secret figure Q who supposedly gives inside information. I just didn't even want to remind you of any of that. So I'm just going to call him the professor, and you'll know who I'm talking about. The professor's worldview, like I said, is defined again and again and again as under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is repeated 29 times in 12 chapters. It's a major idea that this professor, this teacher, is coming from a perspective that only, the only thing that matters, the only thing that are real to him, are things under the sun. And by that he means not including the perspective of God, not including the perspective of heaven. What if what we know under the sun in this physical realm, what if that's all there is? What does that worldview look like? And that's what the author wants us to consider deeply as we listen to the worldview and the teachings and the applications of the professor. The professor is not an atheist, though. He does refer to God. We'll see that in a number of times throughout the book. He'll refer to God. But his theology, such as it is, would be something we might have called a couple hundred years ago deism. The belief that God exists, but he's way out there somewhere, and if he knows what's happening on earth, he really doesn't care. He's disengaged. He's out of touch. He's at a distance. He's not involved in what happens under the sun. And so that's why the professor is going to look in all aspects of life under the sun to try to find meaning and purpose in his life. It's a very American view, isn't it? Yeah. We believe in God. Most people, you very rarely find an atheist. But so many people that say they believe in God don't really believe he's involved in politics, in culture, in daily life. And that's the view of life under the sun. Some parts are going to be true. He's going to say a lot of true things. And a lot of things are going to sound like things you would read in the book of Proverbs that are stated as truisms, things that are true observations about what life is in this world is like. But you have to be very careful with the book of Ecclesiastes not to quote it out of context. Because he's working within that very limited worldview that only things that are real are the things under the sun. He's going to say things that are true if that worldview is true, but because there's more to the universe, it's absolutely not true. Um, it's, it's kind of like when you read the book of Job and you read about and study the sufferings of Job. Remember his friends come to console him? Be very careful about quoting from the book of Job because Job's friends have some bad theology. So when they talk to him and try to comfort him, they actually tell him things that are wrong. And so you can't quote their, Job's friends out of context much of the time. It's the same way with, with this professor, 
Don't quote him out of the context of his own limitations of his worldview. If a more recent example, if you've ever read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he writes Screwtape Letters from the perspective of an archdemon, a high-ranking demon in Satan's uh, hierarchy, writing to an underling demon. And so he's, his worldview of Screwtape is upside down. So basically what he says, it's kind of the opposite of what's true from God's perspective. And, and a lot of the time that's true of the professor in Ecclesiastes. One commentator called the book of Ecclesiastes, pessimism with a purpose. The writer has a, has a very important purpose in asking us to dig into this admittedly very depressing content of the teachings of the professor. He wants us to see that life under the sun, if that's all there is, is life under the sun, then life is very bleak and desolate and there's no hope. You know, it is a method of apologetics. If you want to make a defense of your faith, sometimes that's a very effective thing to do, is to ask somebody else about their worldview and then take their worldview to its logical implications and show them that if they truly live by what they say they believe, it leads to a bleak place without any hope. And that's really what the author is doing here in Ecclesiastes. The worldview of the professor is bleak and hopeless, but it's the bad news that you need to understand before you hear the good news about Jesus Christ, and we'll get there. It will be often a depressing message, but we will always bring it back to the cross. We will always bring it back to the open tomb. We will always bring it back to Jesus Christ, because that is what corrects the wrong worldview of living only under the sun. So today I want to look at, in this introductory section, really the author is kind of introducing us to the basic worldview of the professor. And he tells us three things about it. First of all, he tells us that life under the sun is meaningless. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm sure you've heard that before. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity at least as that word is, English word is used in translation, it appears 38 times in 12 chapters. This is a very important concept. The word vanity, we tend to associate it with one of two things in modern language. We tend to associate it with a, a piece, a part of the, the furniture in a bathroom, or more often we associate it with arrogance, pride, vanity. That, that person is so vain. But that's not the sense of the word that is used when it's used in Ecclesiastes. It's related to the phrase we would say, in vain. In other words, I lost my keys yesterday and I searched my house in vain all day, but did not find them. That's the way that the word is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. It means I came up empty in my search. I wasted my time. It was a meaningless adventure to try to find my keys because I came up empty. A literal translation of the word that is translated in English, vanity, a literal uh, translation would be like a puff of air. It's something that is slight. It's something that's extremely temporary. It's something that ultimately is empty. Uh, one commentator, it actually was very helpful to me. I remember the first time I went through this. He, called, he, he said, I'm going to translate it as soap bubbles. 
Soap bubbles of soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. And that was actually a very helpful image to me because when you think of a soap bubble, uh, you think of a child blowing a soap bubble, floating, they're mesmerized, they're beautiful. They might reflect the light and have some rainbow colors in them and they float through the air and they're mesmerizing. But then all of a sudden, they pop and it, nothing, it's gone. Nothing left. That's the idea of vanity. That's the idea of meaningless. It's literally means meaningless. All is meaningless. In Hebrew, if you take the singular version of a word and you put it together with the plural of that word, it means, it means to intensify the meaning of that word. So it, it's the ultimate of whatever the word is describing. So when you say um, Song of Songs, Solomon wrote the book of Psalm of Song of Songs. It's the ultimate song is what he's trying to say. Or you have heaven of heavens. In other words, the ultimate heaven. Or in the tabernacle, you have the holy of holies, the most holy place, the ultimate holy place where God's presence is represented, the holy of holies. And so when he says vanity of vanities, hear what he's saying. He's not just saying meaningless. He's intensifying the idea of meaningless. It's the meaningless, meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. In other words ultimately meaningless, totally empty, totally without purpose. And notice he says, all is vanity. All is meaningless. That's the conclusion that the professor will come to after all of his search. Secondly, the author says that the professor's view, the worldview of living under the sun is frustratingly cyclical. Cyclical. In, in the bad sense of the word. He says in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. People are born, people live their lives, people die, but the earth just goes on and on as always. And ultimately, the generations that come and go don't ultimately really make a difference. That's what he's saying. It's kind of like Shakespeare's plays. I mean, Shakespeare's plays were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and they're repeated on stages every generation. Every generation since Shakespeare, they've been repeated. The actors change, but the stories and the lines all stay the same. And that's really what, that's what this worldview would say, is that people come and people go, actors come and actors go, but the same stories get played over and over and over. That's what human existence is like. Then in verses 5 through 7, the, professor, the professor's worldview basically looks at the cycles of the earth, the natural processes, and he presents a picture of futility. He talks about the sun. He says, you know, the sun rises over the horizon every day, it crosses the sky, and it goes down, and then the next day it comes up, and it goes across the sky, and it goes down, and it's been doing that since the beginning. Actually, it's interesting, he says it hastens to the place where it rises. You get the idea that the sun goes down over the horizon, then it runs, and, and actually the word, very graphic in the Hebrew, actually he gasps and pants to get back to the other horizon so he can repeat the same course the next day. It's a picture of futility. It's like the hamster in a wheel. You know, keep going, keep going, keep going, but you don't actually get anywhere. That's the idea he's trying to get across with the, the circling of the sun. I just want to as an aside, I want to point out how different is the view of the rest of Scripture. Just give you a little hint here of the difference of the view of the rest of Scripture. 
Psalm 19 also talks about the repeating cycle of the sun, the rising and the setting of the sun. Psalm 19 also describes it, but listen to the different language that the psalmist uses. He says, the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. A bridegroom getting up on his wedding day to go take his wife to himself. That's how the sun comes up on the horizon. And then he goes on to say, and he's like a strong man who runs his course with joy. You see, the, the, those who see above the sun see the perspective of these natural cycles that they have purpose. That even the creation itself has purpose through all of its repeated cycles. Then the professor would talk about the wind. And, and you know, it's actually interesting. He seems to understand, and because the Holy Spirit inspired this book, it, it is going to never contradict science. But it's amazing that it's, consistent, it's explicitly consistent with science. It talks about the circular aspect of the wind that we know as we study meteorology that the winds go in a cycle. And yeah, one day might look a little different than another, but ultimately these wind cycles go round and round. And, and he says, actually talks about the wind blowing from the north to the south, but for us it's east to west on our, part, our side of the planet. But that's what we expect every day, that wind's gonna come from that direction. It's a cycle. And then the other cycle he mentions is a cycle of, of the water cycle, the rivers. He says the rivers keep pouring into the oceans, but the oceans never get full. How does that, why, you know, why, why does that happen? And again, he seems to understand the science behind it because he says it, that water that goes from the rivers into the ocean goes back to the beginning and starts to cycle over. And we know that it evaporates and goes up in the clouds and goes to the mountains and comes down again. And so, He's just saying that's how creation is. That's just the natural world. It's just these repeating, meaningless cycles. What purpose could there possibly be if you have to go back and begin the cycle over and over again? It reminds me of how the apostle Peter dealt with the scoffers in his day, the, the false teachers, the scoffers. They would scoff at the idea that God is going to intervene in judgment. And so he describes, he says, in, Peter says in first Peter, or 2 Peter 3, he says, what is the, where is the, he quotes these scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Hear what they're saying. They're speaking from the worldview of the professor. Everything keeps repeating over and over. Nothing ever changes. How can you possibly talk about God intervening from above the sun? Life is cyclical. There are no divine interventions, is that perspective, the under the sun perspective. And then he comes to a, a preliminary conclusion in verse 8, and he says, under the sun, all things are full of weariness. You see, this is the effect on a human soul of living with these repeating cycles that don't ever seem to really get anywhere. Think about what monotonous repetition does to your soul. If it's in your work, if you have a job where you just keep repeating the same thing over and over again, it gets tedious. And, and the, the author actually seems to allude to that when he says, the toil at which we toil under the sun. That word toil is meant to, to, to communicate the idea of drudgery. Just repeating the same thing over and over again. I mean, think about it. Every morning you get up and you go through the same routine. You, brush your teeth, you take a shower, you get dressed, you walk the dog, you eat your breakfast, you make your coffee, you drive your commute, commute to work or to class, you keep repeating it over and over. It gets wearisome after a while if you lose a sense of a higher purpose to it. Mowing the lawn right after you mowed it just a few days earlier. 
picking up the same toys that you just picked up three hours ago from the living room. Washing the same clothes that you had to wash just a few days ago. Fixing the same meals that you just fixed last week. That's even true. I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody having more fulfilling, exciting work than I have to, to preach and teach the Word of God and to shepherd God's people. But I have to admit it, when I get done with my sermon, I crash on Sunday afternoon, and then I got to get up on Monday morning and write another one from scratch. It's just, you know, every week, everybody's life, everybody's life in this world goes through these repeating cycles. And without a sense of higher purpose, the, the, the author says it's wearisome wearisome. It wears you down. You've probably heard the story about Sisyphus from Greek mythology. Sisyphus was an evil king who cheated death. And when he cheated death, the gods, the way this myth goes, the gods punished him by making him pu push a huge boulder up a mountain. But when he'd get to the top, the boulder would roll back to the bottom and he'd have to push it up to the top again. And that was how he used to spend eternity. And just interesting to me, in a, in a false religion, in a mythology, that's our idea of hell is doing the same tedious job day in and day out, and at the end of the day, you have to get up and start it all over again. And that's what this writer is trying to allude to. And what's the result? You end up dissatisfied, discontent and dissatisfied with your life. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. And I can't think of a better description of modern life in America the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. I mean, think about it. How do most people spend a good chunk of their day scrolling with their mouse, surfing around the internet, or sitting there with a remote in their hand watching television, trying to find a new experience, a new show, something that'll distract them from the wearisomeness of the cyclical, repetitive life that we all live? I think the author of Ecclesiastes nails it. He has a very depressing view of history. History, he sees, is cyclical. And this is important to understand because when you talk about history, now you're getting outside of my life. What about meaning in the broader culture, in the, in the rise and fall of nations? What, what about in the larger world, beyond my own little sphere of the world? Is there meaning there? Is there purpose there? Well, he has a very depressing view of history. He says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Nothing ever changes. The names change, the players change, the scenery changes, but in essence, everything gets repeated over and over in human history. You know, if you've ever seen any of the early Star Trek shows, I'm always fascinated by how the, the worldview of Star Trek changed from beginning to the end. In the very beginning, in the 1960s, when the first show was done, it was amazingly optimistic about human evolution. Matter of fact, when they would meet alien cultures, the crew of the Enterprise would always explain, oh, we don't have war anymore in the Federation. And, and, and you know, humans from Earth, we've learned how to overcome poverty and war and oppression and all these things because we've evolved and we've become so smart and we've uh, developed technology and we're just so much better than all that. Well, that worldview got more and more depressive as you got through later series, but... That's been the view of our culture, this can-do, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, as, as Owen said, the white-knuckling everything, let's just go out and try harder, we Americans can do it. But you look at history, and as the author right, looks at history, it's not the way it plays out. Not under the sun. Every new generation proclaims, we're going to be better than the last one. 
Every child that's raised says, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm not going to make their mistakes. Let me tell you, I've been through the stages. We make all the same mistakes that our parents made. In looking at the broader culture, you know, I, I remember being a period between, say, the world wars, and then we had kind of a lull and thinking, well, we've grown beyond that now. But the same atrocities, you pick up a newspaper, the same atrocities that happened back then are still happening today. People do not change. Life under the sun does not change. Verse 10 says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Isn't that part of our distraction, part of our way we distract ourselves from the wearisomeness of life is we always look for something new, a new technology, a, a new gadget, a new experience, something to, that's new to help us feel like we have meaning and purpose to life. But when you think of, I mean, and the last two or three generations have seen more superficial change than any generation before because of technology and science. You think about how th life has changed over the last hundred years because of technology and science. But the essence of life and the nature of people has not changed at all. It's all superficial and it's all ultimately a distraction. That's what the perspective under the sun is. Technology gives and science gives us an illusion of newness, an illusion of change, an illusion of progress. But if we're really honest, the sameness and the mundaneness of the cyclical life that we tend to live is wearisome. That brings us to the third description that's given of life under the sun is that it's forgettable. In some ways, this is the most painful description of it. It's forgettable. In verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things. He's talked about the cycles of nature. He's talked about the cycles of life. But ultimately, everything that happens today is going to be forgotten. You are going to be forgotten if life is only what exists under the sun. Our lives are like a cup of water taken out of the ocean. When it's gone, it doesn't make any difference. That's really, that isn't, isn't that the life under the sun that the scriptures, you know, life is a breath. It's like the grass of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. We're a mere breath, one of the, the Psalms said, it was read earlier today. Death is a major theme in Ecclesiastes. This is why we are told in scripture to Go to the house of mourning instead of the house of feasting because death will keep your worldview in perspective. Death will drive you to look above the sun. If reality is only what's under the sun, if that's all there is, then death will make everything meaningless. You know, when you think about it, it says it's all going to be forgotten. You're going to be forgotten. Isn't that really what, you know, when you think of a culture that has put God at a distance at best not involved in this world, not intervening in the world, isn't that what you hear now as the hope for after you die is that you'll be remembered? When somebody dies in a movie or a TV show, isn't that what they say? Oh, as long as we remember them, they're still with us. If that's your hope for after you die, that is a pitiful hope because you're not going to be remembered. You think of the, you know, you walk around Penn State's campus and most of those buildings down there are named after someone. How many of us know who the people are, know anything about the life of the people they're named after? I mean, you have to be really famous and important and to, get, to have an impact in order to get your name on a building. But, you know, several years later, nobody even knows what the name signifies. 
I, my wife has been doing a lot of uh, genealogical research over the last few years, and I've learned a lot of, more about earlier generations of my family through the work that she's done. But what really strikes me is once you get past my parents, because my grandparents are so much older, I know very little about my grandparents. I know almost nothing about my great-grandparents. We're talking a generation or two, and they're forgotten, even by family members who ought to remember them. So if your hope is in your family members and close friends remembering you after death, it's a vain hope. It's an empty hope. It's a meaningless hope. I hope I haven't depressed you too much because there's some good news coming. Life under the sun without God's intervention is vanity, meaningless, purposeless, Here's a great quote from one of my favorite commentators. Tremper Longman said this. He said, Kohelis, the, the professor's hopelessness, is the result of the curse of the fall without recourse to God's redemption. That's what life under the sun is. Life without the redemptive plan of God. I'm reminded of one of the best songs that the group Kansas ever put out was called Dust in the Wind. I'm sure you've heard it. Have you ever listened carefully to the words? You would swear the words were taken straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen, listen to the words. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. He got the bad news. He got the perspective of life under the sun, and he was in despair. Kerry Livgren wrote that song. Three years later, he met Christ. Three years later, he looked above the sun and saw the glory of the Son of God, and it pulled him out of his darkness. You see, you can live under the sun, S-U-N, or you can live under the sun, S-O-N. God has intervened. God has never left the earth to go on its own. God has upheld all things by the power of his word. And God has always been involved. But that involvement looks like the plan of redemption in scripture. God sent his son, his only son, into the world. This incarnation that we celebrated at Christmas time, this was God walking into the world the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, adding to his divine nature, a human nature, and living among us, and then taking his perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven. This is a God who is intimately involved in life under the sun. And all the reality that is above the sun has been opened to those who put their faith in this Son who came to earth. Jesus didn't cheat death like Sisyphus. Jesus conquered death when he died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, history is not cyclical. Yes, we do need to look beyond our own little lives to find purpose and meaning, but history is not cyclical. The Bible teaches us what God has revealed from heaven is that history is linear. 
History has a beginning. There was a time when nothing existed but God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But God called all things into existence by his word. And from the point of our sin, he started by walking with the people he created in the garden, but when they rebelled against him, and as our covenant represented, when they sinned against him, he cast them out of the garden, but from that point on, he stayed intimately involved, working out a plan of redemption by which sinners could be saved and spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the scriptures reveal. Scripture is linear. It started at creation when God spoke the universe into existence, and it is headed towards a new, new creation, a new earth, a new heavens, where God will dwell with his people forever in perfection. All that is sin, all that is broken, all that is under the curse will be done away with. You see, it's interesting that the New Testament doesn't ever quote the book of Ecclesiastes directly, but there is a clear parallel passage in Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Point of interest. The word futility there is the same Greek word that is used to translate vanity or meaninglessness in the book of Ecclesiastes. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. That is the only hope that any human being can have under the sun is that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that his death and his resurrection accomplished what he claimed it accomplished, which is the redemptive plan of God to restore a sinner like you and me to God himself, that we can be a part of this great new heavens and earth that is to come. That's hope, and that's the only hope. It's interesting to me that the writer, or the, when when. The professor is quoted in the book of Ecclesiastes when he refers to God. Like I said, he does refer to God every once in a while as a distant being. But when he refers to God, he calls him Elohim, which is the generic Hebrew term for God. He never calls him Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God that God gave to his people who trusted him by faith, whereby he bound himself to his people to redeem them through the blood of his own son. That's the Yahweh that we know by faith. In verse 3, the professor asks, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a, that's a rhetorical question. Because he's going to lay out this worldview under the sun where there's no hope and everything's meaningless and purposeless. What is to be gained by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Sounds familiar though, doesn't it? You've heard that question before. Jesus asked it using slightly different words. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 
That's why Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the hope of the gospel. Our message for this world that lives under the sun and so much of the world cannot see beyond the sun, our message is look above the sun to the Son of God seated on the throne, having fulfilled the plan of redemption of God and waiting to return to bring it to completion. Look above the sun. And this will change the weariness of your mundane life under the curse in this fallen world. I know this because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll close with this. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. There's that word again. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain, your faith is meaningless, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if the under-the-sun under the worldview is true, and only in this life do we have hope in Christ, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he concludes that glorious section by saying this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what's to be gained. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are going to be some difficult moments working through the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. But Lord, you do always have to remind us of where you have brought us from. You need to make us aware of our sins, even as those whose sins have been covered and taken away by the blood of Christ. We need to be reminded daily that we continue to sin, that we might continue to look to you for grace. So, Lord, even as we do have to spend a lot of time in coming weeks looking at what life is like under the sun, what life is like under the curse, the meaninglessness of life apart from your grace and goodness and presence, Father, I pray that we would always be drawn back to the throne of Christ to see him risen from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, and giving our lives meaning and purpose for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your covenant. Thank you for saving us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.